0: Hello and welcome to the Anality Show, the podcast of business through the lines of data science. Together, together we'll dive into learning and sharing where various industries are heading and how data and analytics is at the heart of shaping business growth and productivity. Let's spot different ways of thinking about data and analytics that is relevant to you and prepare your business for future disruption. I'm your host, Jason Tan, I'm delighted you could make it on this journey with us. Hey guys, to continue to get support tips, techniques and tools and learn from the expert, hit that subscribe button wherever you are so we can keep in touch and continue our lifelong learning together. So, are you using your company data to its full potential? Take our embedded analytic assessment, find out your score. A leading organization like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google have moved beyond dashboard and embedded data science directly into their daily business operation. With our three-minute test, you will discover your potential in optimizing customer experience and revenue through embedded analytics. You will gain greater clarity, insight, and advice to embed analytic. Plus, you will receive customized results instantly. Find the link to this assessment in the description of this episode. Good morning, Jonas. Welcome to the Analytics Show. I'm super duper excited to have you here. I feel like we have known each other for very, very long time, which we will go into a little bit of details later. But finally
1: we meet. Thank you so much for having me on, Jason. I'm excited to be here. And as you said, we've had a very similar path in life over the last probably 10 or 15 years. So I'm sure your listeners will hear about it in a minute. But yeah, it's kind of like we're a band of brothers that have gone through uh, similar trials and tribulations over the years, and uh, we can share war stories.
0: Indeed, it's almost like we come from the other part of the world and we sort of like meet in Australia and we talk in the air for over the last five or six years. So that is where I want to get the thing started, just to share a little bit of this common background that we have that is something that related to both of us. It's interesting that when I was talking to you that I realized that how we had cost paths share a lot of a similar path with each other. so you started this digital marketplace called Bike Chaser and I had one called Twenty Two Labs. so I presume similar to your
1: business partner Cameron and myself, you're into cycling? I am absolutely into cycling and it's funny you alluded to that startup that's Myself and Cameron started back in 2014 and I remember at about halfway through that. So in probably 2017 or so from memory, we got an email from you Jason reaching out and saying, I've got the 22 laps started and I want to collaborate with you guys because I really want you to beat the big guys. And you talked about it with me just before the show how in a lot of these sort of marketplace, verticals there are one dominant player and then often a fast follower or a challenger and in the cycling space there is a one big dominant player in australia and they're going around the world as well at the moment which is bike exchange and funnily enough you and i had both seen at the same time that there wasn't a second fiddle to that big challenger and we wanted to take them on at the time and i remember you reaching out to us and having a chat there about how we could succeed with that and helping us a bit because you'd actually started slightly before us. So it's like, we've been on the same path for years. So that marketplace was a really, really big learning experience for me. Um, digital marketing is a really interesting analytical exercise as well as many other things. But before we get to that, you did ask, do I like cycling? I love cycling. I've, <laughs> I've grown up in, in Copenhagen, Denmark, which is the cycling capital of the world. So I've been cycling everywhere since I was four, I think. And until I moved here and I also used to cycle a lot in Australia to and from work when work wasn't inside my own house as it's been in the last almost 12 months now. And what I really appreciate is the sort of utility of cycling. It's such a pleasant way to transport yourself around whilst being good for the environment, good for your own health. And just it creates a different environment in the city as well. When you have less cars and more people on bikes, my business partner at the time was more into that sort of road cycling with the Lycra and fast bikes and all that stuff. So together, we had a a really good package that sort of catered to everyone in cycling. Yeah. So, you can probably share your similar views on cycling i'm sure having gone through a similar experience
0: absolutely i think what i really love about cycling is that i can integrate that as part of my commuting routine both before and after work and i really enjoy how it really gives me that energy and freshen up in the early morning before the work starts but also i think what i really enjoy is that meditation space that I have in that hour, as opposed to sitting on the bus and stuck in the traffic for 50 or 60 minutes just to get to work. The meditation, the integration as part of my community is really what I enjoy about that. And then obviously the weekend long hour cycling, that sort of stuff is what I really enjoy the meditation, especially when you are on the flat path that just paddle and paddle and paddle the meditation getting into that for is one of the best thing that i feel i have ever recycle.
1: <laughs> i can totally relate to that i think when i when i cycled to work i had 20 kilometers each way which is enough to get into that meditative state and it was also a nice way to start the day because you're not actually getting up to go to work you're getting up to go for a bike ride and then it just happens to take you to work And then you start your day from there exactly i think you
0: guys in melbourne definitely have more better facility than we do in uh, brisbane but i suppose i think we sort of are, are catching up but obviously weather is another great advantage that you guys have but i think weather is probably something that people or the city should be taking into the consideration as they are building up more facility what i mean by that for example in brisbane is a warmer weather, warmer, warmer climate here. I think it's kind of like hard for us to encourage cycling as part of the community because not necessarily everyone want to get into sweat or that sort of stuff. Yeah. Now you talk about the digital marketing and also obviously building the digital marketplace platform. Now from my own experience, I know that digital marketplace is a really tricky business. The data side of the bicycle related stuff can be really, really heavy. And what I mean by that is that the numbers and numbers of the data and the accessory, it's just humongous. So as this is more of a data and also the business side, I want to move into that a little bit more of the data side. Now purely from the data analytic perspective, What is one thing that you felt you have learned from these digital marketplace and that it can apply and benefit
1: other businesses tremendously. So I learned quite a few things from that. First of all, I think that marketplace businesses are incredible and wonderful businesses that have staying power and you can build an incredible moat around your business, longevity and sustainability, but only when you actually have critical mass and that's the heartbeat, right? So if you think about some of the biggest tech businesses that have emerged over the last 10 or 20 years, like Amazon, Facebook, they're all marketplace or network related, right? So it's buyers and sellers coming together in an integrated system and then magic happens. So the network effects, but to create those network effects is a very, very big effort and it can be quite costly if you're not the first mover. So in that there's a lot of analytics, of course, in trying to make buyers and sellers meet right at the right time, because if you don't have one, the other won't come. And how do you make it happen at the same time? You got to get enough sellers of whatever products. So in our case, it was cycling products. You got to get enough sellers on there. So our sellers were bike shops and, and the private sellers. And you got to, got to get enough buyers on there at the same time to look at what the sellers are selling. So that was a really tricky analytical exercise. And what I learned from that in terms of what can be done in other businesses were things like... Understanding just how important data driven analytics and algorithmic businesses are for the world. And particularly one that we studied quite heavily because we had to, because that was our big source of data is, well, there were two actually. So Facebook was one big source of traffic for us. And the other one was Google. And both are algorithmic businesses, right? They're, you're basically trying to create something that fits within the algorithm there so that your content gets shown to the right people at the right time. And you don't know exactly what the algorithm is doing, but you know kind of how you can present information such that it will be shown. Right? So we learned a lot about that from using content marketing to promote the business, but also to use that as a source of relevant traffic at the right time for the right things. So, when it came to cycling, for instance, we created content that focused on buyer ready content. So, let's say someone's looking for a road bike under $3,000. That's the sort of keyword search that we wanted to target. And there's a lot of analytics in that because you're writing the content with an analytical slant to it, right? You've got to have the right keywords in there. It's got to be structured in the right way. So, you write it both for the person reading it, but also for the algorithm, Google's algorithm that's actually going to first and foremost, presented to the audience. If no one sees it, then they won't read it. And the same goes in Facebook and other places that you put these things in. So that was a really big lesson for us in terms of how to get traffic. But the second part to that is, and I think this is a broader business lesson, is just the value of delivering over and above to your customers. And delivering more than just sales or here, look at our product, buy now. Um, but actually using content to create a story around your business and to personalize that business, right? So you can you can put a human face on the business, so to speak. And we used ourselves in that sense. I listened to one of your podcasts from the other week where you talked about that with Steve Nauri where you talked about the value of having some people being synonymous with a business. And that actually puts a human at the front of, uh, of sort of a corporate boring building. Otherwise you imagine some high rise when you, when you say um, Microsoft potentially, but you also imagine Bill Gates, right? So that sort of thing puts a human value onto a business and using content marketing to do that and to make your business more human was really important. And I think everyone can learn from that. The last bit was just how important customer intimacy and data-driven customer intimacy is in the modern digital world. So what I mean by that, we studied a lot of marketplaces and the ones that were really good were the ones that could create this unique experience for the customer. So a great example that everyone knows, and I'll probably use it more than once today just because everyone can relate to it, is Amazon. Amazon is a huge marketplace with everything between heaven and earth that you could imagine that you would ever want to buy. It's in there, but they use your data, your clicks and your information that they have on you to actually curate that and present up the stuff that's most relevant to you based on your search history, what you've bought, et cetera, et cetera. And that is because they are obsessed with the customer experience first and foremost, they're using data and analytics to drive that, right? So technology is sort of the foundation of what they do, but they bring the technology to life using data and experience design and combining that, right? And that I think is really the the next evolution of where corporate analytics is gonna go in general, not just in Amazon. There's some things that I took out of that experience for sure.
0: Great stuff. It's amazing that how started that 22 Labs and obviously by chasing it for yourself, as I am watching YouTube or listening to some of the interview done by, for example, Jeff Bezos, just about say 20 years ago, or even the year before the 2000, in some of those interview where he did the presentation or where he shared his view of where the things are at. And I'll give you an example that what you just say is that how he talked about just about 20 years ago, before year 2000, how he talked about Amazon is a store is a different website for twenty million of the people, different experience of twenty for twenty million people, completely different pricing for twenty million of people. I, as I reflect back and listening to what he say, I find that fascinating that how Amazon, Jeff Bezos, and other guys in the digital marketplace or marketplace have already go into such a deeper. Thinking about how the things and how they use analytics to drive the customer experience is fascinating is what I would say about that whole marketplace thing.
1: Yeah. And you can see that in those interviews and in general, Jeff Bezos and Amazon have been quite visionary with how to use analytics and data. And that's where I think a lot of other industries and businesses can take inspiration from that and actually think about how do you do that? And it really takes that leadership from the top to actually make it happen. It's very hard to drive that from the bottom up because it's a cultural thing as much as anything, right? It's not just about building machine learning models and then implementing them. You've got to have that organizational cultural aspect behind it to actually make it succeed.
0: Exactly. And I think one thing that we should all definitely learn from Amazon is that how they use analogy to drive the customer experience, but also drive all the interaction with the customer, drive all the things In the background, and what I mean by that is, even as of today, or at least even as for the last ten or fifteen years, analytics for a lot of places is about dashboard, and whether your dashboard has that model built in or not, is about the dashboard, or is about someone build up the model and doing the presentation with the executive team, right? And then it takes time to execute that it takes time to integrate the, the result. And it takes time to come up with strategy and then subsequently build into the business operation. Whereas what the digital marketplace or the digital business often be able to do is to take that model, take that result, and then integrate them into the business operation. I think that is the one thing that is missing in many, many of the large enterprise that has been running over the last 50, 60 years the difference between the two in using the analogy. Do you agree with that or what is your view in in that?
1: I do agree and a few things come to mind. So what you're mentioning there is basically the difference between having a successful proof of concept versus having a successful proof of concept that leads to an implementation down the track. Right. And in my career, seeing lots of proofs of concepts, not go anywhere because the implementation was hard. It wasn't actually set up to be implemented. So what's an example? Well, in the previous example from a piece of work that I led was we built a pricing model that was quite good and quite helpful for a retention team, but actually implementing it was really hard because the way that the enterprise system was configured was really hard to feed, to sort of feed the information straight to the frontline that was on the phone, speaking to the customer and actually dealing with that. So it's a a small example of where the proof of concept that we built using sort of a, a sticky tip solution to test it proved out to be working really well, but to actually implement it, there was a potential huge IT cost and lots of work to actually set up the system so that we could, feed through this little piece of information that made all the difference and then all of a sudden it's in a big tech queue with lots of other things and it takes all of a sudden years to do something that is actually very simple to do in a few days if you just take the time to do it so that's one example of where i think just having that custom obsession as well helps to prioritize some of these things but it's also showing that for analytics to go through the next evolution where, and I talk a lot about this to people, what analytics has to do is it's going to move from mainly advising the business to actually running the business. So if you think about these examples that we've talked about with Amazon and Google and what have you, the algorithms are actually the business and they're running the business. Now they're extreme examples of it. But if you're a bank and you want to build something into your mobile app that has some level of algorithmic prediction, like uh, bill warnings or product recommendations or what have you, which is a much more benign example, you got to have the analytics team, not just advising the business, but being part of that end-to-end delivery run and really understanding the technological requirements. The machine learning models and what sits under that, they have to be able to build and they're the experts in there, but also then the customer experience around it. So how, when we built the prediction or classification or whatever it is, how do we actually make that come to life in a way that is useful and inspirational for the end user, the customer that is engaging in and using the output of that algorithm. right? So that's really important. And analytics teams need to think differently. I think in the future to do that. I couldn't agree more with you in what you said just before there, Jason.
0: Now, I think the suggestion that I probably would say, if that's okay, I want to develop a little bit deeper into that. That is where I call embedding the analytics into the business operation. And I think part of the challenges that the traditional businesses, and if we use bank as an example, is that the challenges that they face often is they don't own or they don't build their core technology system from the ground up, often they bought from the traditional big vendor, right? As opposed to the advantages that Amazon, or those big, big guys, if we use Amazon as an example, is that they build the things for the ground up. For that reason, I think they have the flexibility to be able to maneuver and how to integrate a lot of these things. So I suppose, The advice for the traditional business like the bank, who doesn't necessarily own and build the core system from the ground up, is that they need to think about how do they build the platform, analytic platform, and fit the result back into their core system. I think that's probably the challenge that they have to figure out for their leadership to think about or for their analytic team to think about how to integrate two together rather than having their beautiful model sitting there to be interpreted and executed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's a really tricky thing that I think a lot of we're talking about banks here as an example and and I actually really like the banking example because I think that banks and the banking industry in general is one of the biggest opportunities for data-driven customer experience and personalization and it's probably the most underutilized opportunity. So when you think about it, A bank will hold so much information on a customer that is pretty personal and that it can be used to describe their life to a certain extent, right? So there's transactions where they've shopped, their financial situation in general, what do they get paid, how often you might be able to pick out where they work, their lending, do they have a mortgage. Where do they live? All these things that banks know. But also in Australia and other jurisdictions around the world, we're now seeing the advent of open banking. For those of you listeners who don't know about that, I'll give a quick summary. Is basically where rather than the customer data being owned by the organization that generates it, in a nutshell, the ownership of the data is transferred to the customer and they can choose who gets to see it. What that means in reality is you can port your data from one bank to the next and you can aggregate your data across many organizations banks and non-banks so that means if you're with one bank and you want to check out the products of another bank you can get them to do a comparison by sucking that data out of your current bank and comparing to their product as an example what that means is there's actually a data aggregation layer on top of each account door or loan, whatever you have across multiple organizations. And someone can build that customer experience, data-driven customer experience on top of all that. So banking is a huge open market for data-driven personalization, in my opinion. Now, in order to actually take advantage of that, you need to be able to not just use that data and build models, but you need to productionize it somehow, right? And this is where, The challenges of, in many cases, incumbent banks have, I think, at a very high level, two technological challenges. They have some very old, sometimes some very old systems, mainframe systems from the 80s still running because they are stable and no one really knows what they do. And everyone who coded Cobalt back in 1985 is either dead or retired by now. And the second part of it is that often the actual IT stack in a, in a big organization is such a big spaghetti of thousands of applications working together. And it's sometimes hard to know that when you change the code over in one corner, something shifts in another corner and to actually figure out how that works is is pretty hard and to feed information through all that spaghetti is also a challenge. Banks are waking up to this now. It's called digital transformation as a uh, modern word. And part of that is moving a lot of stuff to the cloud to have more elastic compute capability and the services that sit in that, but also just cleaning up this spaghetti that's built over time. Now, for me to actually deliver superior value, real differentiation out of digital transformation. And this is to your point, I think where a lot of businesses banks and others fall short is to actually drive superior differentiation as in being very different to your competitors like amazon you have to use data-driven personalization and analytics to do that once you've done your digital transformation it's not enough just to say oh now we've got some new hardware and a new software set up and now everyone will be happy the so what is to me analytics in the next five to 10 years and building that data driven algorithmic driven custom experience that creates that personalization like you said the 20 million different websites or um, mobile apps or whatever whatever is the case there so that's kind of where i see that going and i think it's a huge opportunity for many businesses but it's also very hard and pretty expensive to pull it off now jason i have this theory that is based purely on uh anecdotal evidence. I haven't qualified it. It's not in a peer-reviewed paper from some sort of academic institution. But the way I think about this is typically it takes 20 years for a technology, call it a technology or a style of thinking, a way of operating to mature in big organizations around 20 years. And the reason for that is, and I'll give you some examples, the reason for that is what you need is the people who are on the highest level of decision-making executives and senior leaders often need to have had the experience of using said technology their whole lives as in their whole corporate lives the whole career so they started out having something and then once they get to that exec level it's part of their dna the way that they think so what's an example so i think there are a few examples so Back in 1995, the executives of big organizations wouldn't have had much experience using computers, right? They didn't see the vision for it and all that stuff. Um, But the next generation did. And once they've reached that level of seniority, so the people who were starting out the career, say mid eighties, by the time 20 years have passed and we're in mid 2000s, they are all very, very computer literate. The whole senior level so they have a different appreciation for what technology and computers can do and then we see the birth of digital um, capability online i know there's lots of other factors in it but you see the birth of online banking properly taking off um you see things like iphones and apps and all that stuff coming out now we need to credit the steve jobs and, and others for all that thinking of course but It also takes someone to consume it at the other end and for it to really be embedded in the way that we operate. Similarly, the people who grew up with the internet all the way through their corporate careers, um, sort of 15, 20 years later, when they're at the senior executive level, you're starting to have a lot more business being delivered through social channels because people are more digitally native, they're more online native. Um, You're seeing a lot more online businesses pop up So that's sort of an unsubstantiated theory that I have that until the executive can think and implement stuff and think about the technical details of why something might or might not work, it's going to be a slower evolution. Right? So for me, that means analytics is kind of halfway through that. Right? So the machine learning and AI that we talk about is In many cases, not anything that executives have direct experience with. They know of it, they read about it and they can do lots of things. But if you're the CEO of a big bank, you've never sat there and actually played around with code and and machine learning and all that stuff. right? In the next five years, you'll have lots of executives that have gone through that path. And at that time, this will really, really take off. It's already taking off, but it'll go even faster because you're getting those thinking styles and those ideas that also will work in the detail you're getting them into that highest level of decision making
0: love love that theory and kudos to how you were thinking about that whole psychology and also the personal experience of each of those human the end of days is they are still human driving a lot of those big big organization right so i love how you were joining all of those together and explaining why things are taking place as a result of the experience and also caught uh well the lack of the experience in directly involvement of that now i want also want to give a quick plug to the listener about your qualification in talking in specifically especially about the banking industry so you Left your job recently, almost about a year and a bit now, as the head of analytics for one of the mutual banks called Me Bank in Australia to join Taylor Fry. So that is where you build up, obviously, your career, your understanding of the banking industry as the head of the data analytics. Tell us a little bit more about Taylor Fry for those listeners who may not necessarily be familiar with these company, Taylor Fry. I personally have worked with some of the guys before, but I'll let you talk about it,
1: please. Yes. You've worked with some of my colleagues, so you know the level of intelligence. I would say this is the first place I've worked where I have felt dumber than the average. I think that's a good thing. I can learn a lot from some very, very clever colleagues that I have there. Now, Taylor Fry is a advanced analytics and actuarial sciences consultancy so we do work across government and corporate clients in australia and in new zealand and we've sort of come out of an insurance world with the actuarial sciences and uh, and analytics and pricing and that sort of thing to start with but these days we're much more than that and in the advanced analytics team we focus on sort of end-to-end analytics so right from strategy to development and implementation of machine learning models, experimentation and experiment design, testing and measuring, but also AI ethics, AI governance. And then we're really strong as well in what has been up and butter for many years and where you've had the connection yourself, Jason, in a past life, in pricing optimization and uh, sort of customer value, customer profitability measurement and optimization. So, Taylor Fry is actually 51% owned by Qantas, which is for your international listeners is the biggest airline in, in Australia. And you might say, well, that's kind of weird that an airline has a majority stake in a advanced analytics company. And it is weird, but I think it shows you what kind of work that the company does and Qantas was one of our big clients, huge clients um, about five years ago when they bought into us and they bought the majority shareholding because they wanted to control that IP and make sure that it didn't get put somewhere in their competitors' hands in any way. So they've obviously valued the things that we've done with them, uh, including pricing and and personalization of uh, customer experience and so on, amongst many other things. So that's Taylor Fry. We're about 100 people across Melbourne, Sydney, and Wellington in New Zealand. But we serve as clients across Australia. So that's us in a nutshell. I could imagine.
0: Well, actually, I know another consulting analytic company is also owned by another massive, massive Congo mullet in Australia, but we're not going to that space today. Let's dive into a little bit more details of your role at Taylor Fry. So you are now the director of analytics. Taylor, right? I suppose before we go into the detail, I want to take this opportunity to give back to the listener to say, to understand what would you say the biggest differences working for a consulting firm versus the in-house analytic in a bank that so that they have an idea, what does that mean? And so that they can make a better choice or the choices that fit into their own career expectation.
1: Yeah. Nice one. So when I was looking for my next opportunity about a year ago, I had different thoughts on what I wanted to do. And this will kind of my thinking pattern here will give you an answer to your question. I thought about going to another corporate organization and managing the analytics operation there. And the other option I thought was viable was to go into consulting And the reason I chose consulting at this point in time was that I see this massive evolution in analytics at the moment. And we've talked a little bit about it in terms of customer experience design and the technology being ready now to consume a lot of data, right? Everything's moving to the cloud and you got sort of elastic compute power and you can build some really powerful models now that you can run real time and so on from a technological perspective, it can be done and I can see how that next evolution is a really interesting thing to be a part of and driving that in, across many industries. So when you're working in an organization in-house, you get to do end-to-end within that organization. There's variance in terms of what you get to do a broad remit. When you're in a consultancy, you get to do the more cutting edge, more advanced stuff for lots of organizations instead and i think for me that was what i was wanting to try at this point in time and that for me is really the difference between the two right so consultants are are often brought in when the in-house team doesn't have the capability to do something or the capacity to do something or sometimes as we get dragged in is uh, when uh, when another consultancy has done a poor job and we we come and do the cleanup (laughs) but it's that cutting edge part of the industry that I wanted to be a part of. Now, what I think there is important is that when analytics and data-driven decision-making machine learning, AI, whatever you want to call it is going through this next evolution, consultancies actually have a pretty big responsibility for making sure that that is done right because they're often called upon to, I suppose, provide due diligence on what a business is doing, provide advice on what a business is doing, call out the things that could be done better, the things that could be done differently, the f- mistakes that must be avoided that others have done. So the actual implementation of analytics across the corporate landscape and, and government in Australia, and the same rule will go in other countries is to a large extent relying on consultants and consultancies because they're called upon to do it. So I wanted to be part of that and be part of a consultancy that has the right values and ethos of really caring for the customer outcome. and delivering those things. So I think that kind of explains in a nutshell, what the differences are consultancy versus in-house, but also what my motivations were to go across.
0: Did you have to make any adjustment as you were moving from the in-house analytics team at the organization into a consultancy firm?
1: I did, and I think it depends on at what level of the organization you're at and what your role is, of course. So, if if you're a data scientist, for instance, who builds models all day, and you move across from an in-house team to a consultancy, the foundational parts of the work is is very much the same, right? And in many ways, the way that analytics teams work today in organizations, they're kind of in-house consultancies of sorts already, right? So, that's not too different. For me, because I'm a director and I lead the analytics practice in Melbourne, I had a business development responsibility that I didn't have before. So that was new to me. I'd luckily had that experience from past roles, including having my own startup where you have to go and and meet new clients and so on. But that's different to someone who works in an in-house team and does that. You're always, you're always selling, right? Everyone works in sales, whether they like it or not. And if you're bad at it, you're just a bad salesman, but you're still selling yourself every day. And um, that's the unfortunate truth. But in this case, I have to actively do that. So so if someone's not up for that or interested in that, then at least the senior levels of consulting is something that they just, just should think twice about would be my advice. Now, for me, it's not selling as such. It's really about helping people do something better. So that's another way to think about it. If you consider yourself someone who is helpful and, and a, a creative thinker, then selling is another term for that, in my opinion.
0: Hey all I just want to give a quick shout out about this episode. It's sponsored by the Embedded Analytic Program at DDA. And the Embedded Analytic Program is designed for senior manager and executive in the business team who want to integrate data science into daily business operation and use it to drive customer experience excellence and revenue, and book unlimited strategy session for a full year and start embedding analytics into the business frontline. For more information about this program, please refer to the description of this episode. Now let's get on back to the interview. I probably would phrase it to be more of uh you would have to be more actively and go out and find ways to help kind. I think it's the way that I would phrase it. Now, looking back on a different side of the coin, what would be your advice to the analytic consultant in the consulting firm who are looking to move into the corporate instead looking back to that whole journey?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't actually gone the other way yet. So I don't know how easy that is, but um, <laughs> but I mean, there's the fundamental bit of, and again, it depends on at what level of seniority that you're applying and what the role is and how well your resume um, suits. So when it comes to data scientists, I've hired a few from consultancies because I know they have broad experience. When it comes to leadership positions, they might, they being the jobs that you're looking for, they might want your experience there to be showcased somehow applying for jobs is a a trick. But, but other than that, I would say that it is really important for you as a consultant at all levels to build strong personal relationships with the clients that you work with genuine ones. Right. And so you never know what opportunities are going to come out of that. What friendships are going to come out of it and what connections you're going to get further down the track and we'll get to it i'm sure later on but i have a book coming out and one of the co-authors on that book was a consultant of mine that i used and we became friends and all of a sudden we were writing a book together right so that's an example of something that came out of that but i think when you're a consultant you want to put your best foot forward and get to know the people and the organization not just do the work in the organization and that's the way you you put yourself forward and make yourself known for high quality work, and then the rest is probably gonna take care of itself over time.
0: Absolutely, I would go into the details about the book later, but I want to continue us in this track. Right? So I hope all of these questions are preparing us well for the next segment. And my research is that I believe your area of the expertise is corporate analytics. And must admit is a new term for me. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah. So corporate analytics or call it advanced analytics is really just a way of saying that I work in the realm of optimizing corporate entities using data-driven decision-making. So it's not more fancy than that. So when we talk about data science and analytics and so on, the, the, the spectrum is quite wide typically, right? I'm not the one building algorithms to make self-driving cars and all that stuff. That's other people with very different talents to mine. But the space of optimizing corporate organizations is really where my talents lie and where I I help clients and where I've also built my career in-house before that. So what does that mean? It's things like how do we make our pricing more relevant for customers? How do we make sure that we have the right trade off between pricing and other features for customers um, on our products such that we can retain them better how do we optimize our marketing mix how do we optimize our marketing spending through the right channels such so that we get the most value out of that um, and you can use data and analytics to do those things right so the financial slant to to just doing things better then we have which is what we've talked about at length already is personalization and data driven sort of customer intimacy that I think will become more and more important it's tricky to do it but things are converging in the marketplace now so that it becomes more and more important for businesses to be able to do that and then the last couple of bits to that I would say is which is also customer experience and I actually had a conversation with a client a few weeks ago about this who works in in risk management and we were helping them with a project around, optimizing the way that they measure risk using data and analytics. And I said, look, think about your role here. You're at the back end of the business and you're trying to take risk out of it, but you're also part of the customer experience because the way you do it will impact the customer either directly or indirectly, right? The risk settings that you have. So let's say again, pick the banking example. If their risk management is to, to decline all loan applications that look too risky, then the customer experience is that you have a lot more applications declined. But if you get more sophisticated with that, you could get more accurate and improve the customer experience for, for the customers that actually could have gotten a loan if you hadn't been so strict. That's a basic example, but it sort of gives you an idea of how something looks like a backend activity, but it's actually directly customer experience. And then the last bit, which is really, really important these days and especially now that we're moving from this this realm of analytics being used to advise the business to actually running the business on algorithms is AI ethics and governance of machine learning models. And generally sort of governance of how you use your data in your organization. So that's what I think about when I think about corporate analytics and that's really sort of the spectrum that I work in and uh, the Taylor Fry also has a lot of expertise in.
0: Absolutely. What do you think are the most valuable lessons when it comes to the requirement for the organization to succeed with the advanced analytics, whether it is in the individual department area that you mentioned in terms of the marketing pricing, and risk management, et cetera, or even to the extent for those that are more mature one who is, who will be able to bring all of those together to have a holistic view. What are the lessons that you would ask them to pay more attention?
1: So one of the key things for me is that the detail of the analytics, so the numbers and the statistics and whatever else we combine to get an output is 50% of the work. The other 50% is about human beings and the things that are required there to actually make analytics and advanced analytics in an organization really take off and really have an impact is I think one really important thing is you got to have support and buy-in right from the top. So I'm talking here about the CEO and the executives underneath. They are such important drivers of culture in the organization and the way that they will use and adopt data analytics will flow on to the rest of the organization. Conversely, if they're not interested in it, it's very hard to penetrate from the bottom up with something that's new, something that's advanced, something that frankly, the rest of the organization doesn't really understand one, how it comes together, but two also necessarily has a big vision for what it can do. And without that support from the top and sort of a top-down push to actually embed analytics across the organization, it's going to be very hard. You just, you're not set up to succeed. Now, when it comes to strategy, then that's really important there as well. So there needs to be a corporate strategy and an analytics strategy that link. So your analytics strategy, often you see analytics strategies with phrases like, Oh, we, we need to have really advanced analytics and machine learning model capability, which is a good goal to have, but it's not specific enough um, to actually, to actually have a meaningful outcome, right? It needs to be linked to the, so what, so the the corporate strategy, right? So we want this advanced capability so that we can do X, Y, Z, so that we can deliver superior customer experiences through our mobile app, like X, Y, Z, Proofpoint. let's say someone wants to, again, I'm, I'm picking a banking example. So they're close to heart. Someone wants to build a mobile app that has a sort of a forecasting or budgeting capability in there as so one proof point. And that's because they want to help the customer succeed financially. Then you've got to build the analytics strategies such that that's made it possible, right? And that when you think about that, it's not just about building. A model or an algorithm that can calculate the right budget. It's also, how do we actually get that in to the app? What is the technological stack that we need to have to make that quick enough, real time with the right data, validated, it's governed, all those things. So you got to have the right level of strategy from an analytics perspective that links to the overall corporate strategy. And then the two, the two are, are joined, right? Then after that, it's just really important at a basic level to have your analytics team have time to do this work. So that sounds really kind of basic, but often what happens is you get distracted and distraction is a massive thing for this sort of really deep, complex focused work. So I think having, and I talk to organizations a lot about this, having the right BI set up in your organization can free up so much time to for you to do more advanced stuff that you wouldn't think of otherwise, simply because when you have the right BI set up, all the, I call it level one questions. So how many units did we sell, who did we sell it to all that stuff, potentially how many are we going to sell next month when that's taken care of? And people think about the level two, level three questions, the better questions, the really, really deep diving questions, the questions that are actually going to move the dial. And you spend time on those ones rather than answering the basic stuff. Then all of a sudden you're just spending time in a different, a different level, right? Um, And you're going to come up with better answers to better questions. So you can come up with all the right answers to the wrong questions and spend a lot of time on that. So having a BI set up, it really frees up your organization to do some self-serve. business people but also your analytical team members to actually do something better with their time now to for them to do better with their time you need to actually isolate people sometimes and have them not disturbed i think that's a pretty important thing and i see examples of it here and there where people do it well and it works and where it's actually a strategy and i've also used that in my career um, at a very basic level when i have run analytics teams i've always had someone work on secret projects that i wouldn't tell people too much about because i don't want them to get too excited about it before it's at a point where it's actually going to be useful i also don't want the analyst analysts who are working on it to be distracted with other stuff so i'll give you an example and i've done this twice one as the actual creator and then one time i was the leader of the team so in a formal organization where I worked, I decided to build a customer lifetime value calculation for the whole organization. I had 4 million customers and we didn't know what the value of these were. I didn't tell anyone about it at first. I had some of my capacity 20, 30% of my day, not taking up my projects at the time. This was working internally in an organization and I started coding this up. And three months later, we could calculate the value and forecast the value of every customer at an individual level. And I did that because I put that time aside and I didn't tell people until there was some product that was almost done that I didn't get distracted all the time. When I later in my career had to build that somewhere else, I had this analyst work on it for a similar amount of time. And we had lots of priorities coming into the team, lots of requests for very urgent things, but this analyst, I didn't take them out of it. I kept them on that project to finish it because I knew that it would be able to be a stepping stone for the organization and thinking differently about the value of their customers. So again, at a high level, I think it's really important to just carve out, isolate time for analytics teams to work on the things that are not urgent, but important. And really focus on that because that is what's gonna over the longer term make a difference to your organization
0: you reminded me a uh, messages chain that i have with one of the cdo from a innovation company in australia and in the same vein of how you were talking about keeping the project or the team uh, secret i think the way that we describe it i think is almost the same but we use the analogy of like keeping the team extremely, extremely small. And I think to some extent, this is where perhaps some of the organizations are getting it wrong in a way that whenever they want to start a new analytic project is that they're gonna start showing project manager, 20 team members, all of these project stakeholders. Now I totally get it from the budget perspective and the sponsoring perspective, but I think the challenges when When there are too many people involved, when it's out in open, everyone wants to throw in their opinion. Everyone wants to throw in a feature request. Everyone wants to do bigger than what it is supposed to be. Suddenly it will be the next sexiest machine or the beast in the house and everyone wants to be part of it. And because of that, it throws so much challenges to the team and prove it to be working because suddenly proving it to be working and proving this to be successful is no longer just getting that one most basic and the one most important things to be working and to be successful. But it is about satisfying all the different people. And that is how the success will be considered. And that is how success will be integrated. And equally, I want to go back to the word that you use being distracted because suddenly everyone is distracting everyone so it make it so hard to prove the basic thing to be working and then how you add on i would probably say there's another way that i would interpret that do you think do you think that small team is perhaps a way to do that and what would be your advice to the organization to say instead of trying it out there and being an open thing like what you were saying, how would you tell them it is better to keep that in the secret and keep it in a small team until it proven to be working and then you only start having all these people because i think it is so going against what the mass what everyone else is doing how would you be able to say you need to keep it under the secret because of all these advantages that you describe
1: Yeah. It's an interesting question and concept of, of secret. So if I think about agile, it's a corporate buzzword, but also a a working methodology, new ways of working or whatever you call it. Part of that is designed to have smaller teams that iterate and work quicker without having the hierarchy of lots of people needing an opinion and especially senior people having to approve on certain things before something gets done. And I think it is actually a really, really important cornerstone of digital development. That there's a lot of stuff often you don't know until you experiment with it a bit and you test it. And often you need a small handful of people who know just the right stuff to get it done so that you can prototype rather than having everyone involved and sort of project oversight and check-in and governance meetings and all that stuff. Which will slow it down. And I'll give you a small example of of this customer lifetime value calculation that we built. At one point we showed it to a senior member, an executive. And they were so interested in it, they thought it was wonderful. But then what also happened was they started auditing and questioning all the ways that we've calculated certain things and whether that was the right way to do it. And before we knew it, the project shifted slightly from focusing on building this calculation out and be, making it more advanced and more robust for operationalization to actually spending time on proving why, what we had done was right and not the other way and spending time on PowerPoint packs to explain why we would made this assumption over that assumption and all that stuff, which is important because you've got to win your stakeholders over. So don't forget, this is, this is actually an important part of the exercise, but we didn't want to do that at the front we knew it was going to come. We didn't want to do that at the front because we knew that we wanted to have it at a certain level before we started engaging with the rest of the business and having this challenge of, of having to prove out not just the value of the tool, but also that we've done it in the right way and so on. And I think that kind of proves that the small secret team really helped get it to a certain point first. And then once we were ready to show it to the rest of the world, we did, And it introduced a whole host of new tasks that we had to deal with, which weren't actually producing the the thing in itself, but making stakeholders happy with it.
0: So for someone who is in the role of the senior member or the leader in the organization, what do you think that they would help to encourage more of this sort of innovation from the ground up then? Because to certain extent, they're not directly involved. And while they have to make sure that the the team on the ground, uh, paddling the boat to the direction that the senior team is setting, but at the same time allowing room for innovation, because the ground is often the one who is closest to the tools, closest to customer experience, and closest to all the metrics that is produced by the front line. How should they balance the two in order to make them a successful? of analytics in the
1: organization so this is a big part of the whole importance of having ceo and senior executives bought into the value of analytics right which means not just saying that analytics is important but also facilitating the right framework for those teams to succeed right so at a high level executives need to be really cognizant of what they say and how that affects the workloads of certain teams subsequently. Right? So a classic example is people who, and I've been in this situation a few times where you go to a meeting with the CEO, they say, Oh, this XYZ would be interesting to know. You go away and work on it for two weeks and then you come back and say, here's the answer to your question. And they can't even remember that they asked that question. So you spend all this time that you could have spent on something else for something that was just a a throwaway comment. Right? So I think that is important for executives to understand just how they can have an impact inadvertently on an organization, but also for the people at the receiving end of that they need to be able to navigate those personalities and, and agree on what work gets done and what doesn't get done and the priorities and all that stuff. So that's one thing, but, I actually saw a few years ago, a great example of, of this in Canada, which is, there's a big bank over there. That's, I can't remember how big it is, but it's one of the biggest in Canada called TD Bank. So you can look it up. It's got 50,000 employees or something, so a big monster. And they bought an advanced analytics business of, I think there might've been 15 to 20 staff to actually build out their customer experience, personalization framework using data and analytics. And what they did was really interesting to me because what they did was they did not move that company to the head office of TD Bank. They kept them separately. And they said, you cannot have a meeting with them. Only if your request meets these X number of qualifications, then you can actually have a meeting with these guys. Other than that, they're off limits. and we don't want you to disturb them from building this really important piece of work. So that's sort of an extreme of that, right? But there's to an extent, a bit of that in there. The other thing I think is important is realizing just how important it is in the future for three parts of the business to come together in a way that they have never done before and work in a way and collaborate in a way that they've never done before, which is technology, IT technology, whatever you want to call it data and analytics and your custom experience design. So in some areas they have now chief experience officers or chief customer officer or chief marketing officer, wherever it sits. But the people who are responsible for the technology stack, the people who are responsible for using data and the people who are responsible for designing the ultimate customer experience need to come together to design that with all those three elements in it, because that's what it takes to succeed. So if you think about what we're doing, we, there are industries that are data driven more and more. The last 20 years we've spent on digitizing things by making things almost the same for everyone. So you can log into an account online and you can follow a step that everyone gets. And it's a funnel that is optimized for clicks and usability, but everyone gets the same. So your banking app is the same as mine. If we have the same bank, when you use your utility company, it's the same or your phone company, you log into the website. It's the same. When you shop on most online websites, other than you might like those sorts of recommendations, which are personalization, the shopping cart and all that is the same. The delivery method's the same with some level of customization, but it's clicking here and there. We are now trying to change that and make everything different for everyone, making everyone unique. So we've made everyone the same in the digital world. So now everyone's in the digital world, which is the first step, the first win. Now we're trying to make everyone's experience in the digital world different. You can only do that if you have the right experience design, customer design, UX design, the right data-driven algorithms to sit underneath and the right technology to actually serve it up. So for me, that is really where organizations need to invest in terms of skills and capability, but also it's a big cultural aspect to that. They've got to drive that thinking style and that collaboration across those organizations, putting people in the right rooms together, the right conversations together.
0: I love how you can summarize that three elements into a way for people to take away as a framework. Now if any of the listener are interested to learn more or like to go into deeper into what you have shared so far, I believe they can uh, read a book that you are about to release. Tell us a bit more about this book. What do expect and when to expect it?
1: Yes. So the book is called, Demystifying AI for the enterprise and it's published by Taylor and Francis UK and it's going to be published across the world. So this book is not a bunch of Python code and ways to build algorithms. It's a non-technical book for analytics leaders and people working in analytics professionals in that area, but also executives and CEOs that want to know how to implement AI in their business. So we look at across many industries, what are the ways that AI is being used at the moment and, and what is it going to do in the future across many industries like healthcare, like finance, retail, etc. And we look at that in terms of what an industry is going to do, but also how you then can take that and implement it in successfully in your organization. What's required from a cultural point of view and strategy and so on. Technologies, they tend to change from time to time. So it's hard to write a timely book about but today. You might need the AWS tomorrow. It's Google cloud or something else. Right. And and that's sort of not what's in that book, but the strategy around how you get to there is there. It's a book that contains this information, but also lots of case studies from around the world of just how businesses are actually using it at the moment. It's being AI to actually deliver value to their customers. Now I keep saying we, because there are a number of authors on this book. It's not just my book. I'm a co-author. So the people on it are Prashant Natarajan and Lee Wilkinson, who are from h2o.ai. And we've got Ed Dixon from Intel. We've got Kirk Bourne from Booz Allen Hamilton, and then Shanta Mohan from Carnegie Mellon University. And then myself that are the authors on this book. Now you ask the all important question of when is it getting released? And you know, Jason, I've been chasing up a date, but I don't have it. Unfortunately, this pandemic has shifted the date out a bit, but it will be coming out in the next few months. I'm thinking two to three months from now, it will be out. If people are really interested, they can go and find me on LinkedIn and click the follow button or connect with me. And I will definitely be posting about this book once it's in market. Uh, You can rest assured. Wonderful. I will probably, do a follow-up with you, say, three months later to get the link
0: of the book in case people are landing on the website or listening to this. And this is the beauty of the podcast, which is uh, you could record it, could be listened again and again in the future, right? And uh, for those who listen in the future, hello, future, uh, <laughs> I'll have the link ready for you. One thing that I just want to have a quick plug of that is you mentioned about Prashant Nataranjan. He's now the director of the product, at the h 2 He was one of the podcast guests in the early day when I first started this, which is why I always wanted to ask you about that title, demystifying AI for the enterprise. So well done for that. And uh, congratulations for coming all that way to publish the book. I am looking forward to read that. Now I'm gonna end this by asking you my two favorite question. What is the most important first principle?
1: So when it comes to, Data and analytics, I have two important first principles. I'm hoping I'm allowed to have two. One is when we're in the detail, my favorite saying is before we can say we're right, we've got to make sure we're not wrong. So what does that mean? That means you can come up with a quick analysis or some clever chart that tells you just exactly how things are and it looks beautiful and you just want to storm off and show it to your stakeholders. But guess what? You gotta check all the reasons why that could be wrong before you say you're right. It's very important when you're in analytics, that you check all the corners of your analysis to make sure that you haven't made the wrong conclusion. The second mantra is think like you are the CEO. And I'm not saying be like the CEO. I'm saying think like you're the CEO. And why do I say that? Because when you work in analytics, you have so much power at your fingertips. You have all the information of the whole business there and you can, identify lots of things in that data. You can slice and dice it the way you want. So your responsibility is big because you can find things that no one else can find. And therefore you got to think about the whole business at once. What is the most important thing I can do for this business with this data? And that is the way that the CEO would think. So you got to feel like this is your business, that you're the owner of it and you're taking care of it by looking at this landscape of data and information and making the best out of it. So they'll be my two mantras for today. Great stuff. What is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better
0: for your younger self to have?
1: Oh, you know what, Jason, there's actually, you know, how sometimes a book just comes along right at the right time and just makes a difference for you. And that's happened more than once in my life. So it's actually a little bit difficult to pick one. And it's contextual for me, of course. But so I think that Seven Habits of Highly Successful People helped me think about personal development in a different way when I was at a young age. So that was helpful for me at the time. I read The 4-Hour Week as well in my mid-20s, which helped me start my journey of online entrepreneurship and experimenting with that. But I think the book that I'd probably pick first and foremost is called Mindset by Carol Dweck. And this book talks about fixed versus and oh no, I've forgotten what's the other one, fixed versus <laughs> <laughs> that's not a good plug for a book, is it? <laughs> it's a good book, right? So when you have a fixed mindset, you basically think that there's only one way to do things. You think that your path is set to some extent. You have the abilities that you have, the intelligence that you have, and it can take you a certain way. Whereas the opposite to that is you can practice your way to anything you can practice your way to success you can learn if you put in the effort and i think if i'd had that at an earlier point in my life i I would have really appreciated that and it came to me again as a really important sort of insertion in my life at a time where i was finding it really tough in my career i changed it to a job where i didn't have the resources and the setup to succeed and I was three months into the job and I was ready to quit, right? I thought this is the biggest mistake I've ever made. I went on a holiday at the time and I had this book with me, a friend of mine, who's a psychologist, a performance psychologist. So he works with professional sports people to make them think differently about things and sort of bolster their performance. He gave me this book and I went on this holiday and I climbed Kilimanjaro, the mountain in Africa during this holiday. And I had this book with me all the way and I, I read it and I don't know if it was the book or the, the thin air on the mountain, but I went back and I thought I'm going to change this situation rather than quitting. And I'm going to not have a fixed mindset about it. And it really, really just put my career on a different trajectory just because I changed my attitude. It was the same job, but I changed the outcome of it. So that's a really important book for me. And one, Recommend. I wanted to say thank you so much for opening up
0: in that two minutes. I want to use this opportunity to give a shout out and applaud what you have just did. I think a lot of time, often we look up to the people who have done it and we think that it must be such an easy route for them. They know exactly what's gonna happen. They know exactly what's gonna be doing. And they never have to suffer or face any challenges or they never really have even any doubt about what will happen for them to build up their career, right? But the reality is I think a lot of people, including those that we admire by yourself would have to go through. So it's completely okay to face that. And it's completely okay to have that reset and a pause to reflect on what is really important for them and then start again. So thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, yeah, lovely to have you. And
1: again, thank you so much for sharing everything that you have to share. Thanks a million for having me on Jason. It's an absolute pleasure. And I hope that your podcast continues to be successful and that your listeners will enjoy what we've just talked about. Thank you so much. Hello. If you
0: enjoy this conversation, hit that subscribe button so we can meet again. If you don't, I'll be stuck in an infinite loop. So pull that part by clicking the subscribe and help me out. You can further support us by leaving us a kind review from wherever you are listening. At the end of the year, I will choose a reviewer to send a special gift to and it might just be you. Look forward to seeing you here next week for a new adventure. If I can find my way out of this endless loop. See ya!